So let me be the first to say, Merry Christmas. <laughs> if my addition is correct and my ability to read a calendar is correct, in approximately 65 days, I say approximately because it depends on what you do it today, but approximately 65 days, it will be Christmas Day. You're your head just for a moment there. So my question to you first is, are you finished with your Christmas shopping? If not, then I'd like to kind of nudge you into a little different perspective on your Christmas shopping this year. Um, I, I think that we've seen a shift in our society over the last maybe, gifts that were personally and strategically chosen for people to maybe an approach that simply says, I've got to get a gift for them. I need to check this off of my list. I know I'll give them a gift card. Now, I'm not opposed to gift cards, but they're specifically given to say to them, uh, I know who you are, I love who you are, and I want to give into who you are something that is meaningful to you. And the approach that says, I just need to get this checked off of my list. I, I'm thinking that way because I, I was referring back, uh, we had some family stuff this week, and uh, caused me to be nudged back into my family history a little bit. And um, I remember when we did Christmas at our house, and, and I don't remember exactly when it happened, but I remember when I noticed that it happened. You know, when little children approach Christmas Day and they get their gifts and they take those boxes and they rip into the paper that's there, and uh, unless you have a son like my oldest one who always neatly untaped everything and folded it up, it's frustrated me to, to no end, but... Um, most children understand Christmas well enough that they dive into the process, and it's all about getting into the gift that's been given to me. But somewhere in my family, it was somewhere in that late childhood to the uh, early teen years, that that very selfish approach to opening gifts, that what's for me and what do I have here, began to give way to the realization that there were other people in the room and that other people got gifts as well. And so I remember my daughter especially, she was the one, maybe, maybe not the only one, but one of the primary ones in our family that was really kind of aware of other people. And uh, so I remember one Christmas, the first time that I remember seeing her do it, she opened her gifts and she was elated and all that stuff. And she looked over at her brother, whom she loved dearly, and her question to him was, Colin, what did you get? It was the first time anyone about that. She played the part very well. What did you get? That serves as a good transition for life together and the gifts that we have. In this series that we have entitled Disciple DNA, we are working through some of the statements, eight specific markers or character traits of a disciple as delineated by our vision task force in the report that they brought to us. And we come today to the sixth one. It's the sixth message, but it's the fifth one of these traits or character markers. And here's what it says. Um, and I begin with a, an earlier part of it. It says, FBCEP, that is us, First Baptist Church El Paso, should seek to develop disciples who 
And here's the trait. Possess a clear understanding of their unique talents and gifts. Now, on the surface, that doesn't sound much like the title of this sermon, which is, What Did You Get? This this point of reference for us that we bring as followers of Jesus Christ includes this idea, this, this reality, that each of us is given a gift from God that is intended to be used specifically for the furtherance of the health and the, um, the efficiency of the church and the kingdom of God. So I want to ask you this morning as we begin, what did you get? Are you aware of what your own spiritual gift is? What did God give to you that is specifically designed to enhance the efficiency and the health of both this church or whatever church you happen to be a member of and the kingdom of God? Three questions will drive our message today. When first chosen an entire chapter, uh, and he's going to try to cover it in one day, that you should have brought a lunch. But that's not the case. What I want to do is kind of pick and choose a few of these passages here out of chapter 12, and, and we'll use most of the chapter, but I, I want you to, to go home and kind of dig into what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But three questions will drive this discussion today. Here's the first one. Why do we emphasize gifts, and spiritual gifts specifically, as a part of discipleship. I know that there are some in our world today, in our church world today, who scoff at this idea. I've heard it many times from various people, many of them pastors actually, who when the discussion turns to the role of spiritual gifts in the life of a believer, in the life of the church at large, there is, and they step back away from that, and there is this, this kind of a scoffing that goes with that. Well, yeah, you know, whatever. I don't understand that. Because when we come to understand and look at what spiritual gifts are and the way God intended them to be used in his church, it is such a biblical and such a foundational concept that I don't really get why someone would look at this and back away from it and say, well, no, that's, that's for somebody else. I, I think it may have something to do with being reactionary, against some discussions about spiritual things and maybe spiritual gifts even. But I believe, for what it's worth, I believe that it is a stroke of genius. We would expect nothing else from God. But it is a stroke of divine genius that God put together this approach to seeing to the, as it relates to doing kingdom work. Why do we emphasize these? I'll even add to that it is a foundational element of discipleship. We might think of it, along those lines, we might think of it as something of a division of labor for the organization. <clears throat> I don't want a show of hands or anything like that, but have you heard of this, this production series called Downton Abbey? Now, I don't really want to have to surrender my man card <laughs> but um, I, I got roped into this. Now, in the second service, I'll just say I started watching it, but I'll tell you because she's not in here that my wife roped me into watching this. In case you're not aware of it, Downton Abbey was a production of the masterpiece part of PBS, 
And in about 2011, I think it was, they began a six-year run, 52 episodes, that chronicled the life of this family and their servants uh, in the, at the turn of the century in Britain. Now, that to me, there's an argument in just what I've already said not to watch it, all right? So that's, that's how I approached it at first. But as I started watching it, I, I, it, it, was, it was so well written, and, and the storyline took us in places that, that I began to get engaged with it because of the way that it chronicled the lives of people some of them were aristocracy, I guess you would say it that way. They, one, the guy was a lord and his wife, and they, they had this place. They called it the Abbey, uh, and, and they had all of these servants. And the whole series just kind of went around the idea of we're going to track life as it happens with this gathering of people. It's not all that big a, a, a cast, although it was big enough that you could follow multiple storylines at once. And so that's, that's what the appeal was. And so I, I was intrigued as I started watching that with the division of labor that was required in that abbey in order for them to function. Now, the Lord, the, that's a small L, just so you know. Let's just call him the big kahuna, all right? Happened in Britain, not Hawaii, but let's call him the big kahuna. This guy, his main function was, I think, to go hunting. I'm not really sure, but that's what it seemed to be to me. Maybe he was the one who managed the finances for the estate, although we never really saw him doing a whole lot of that. But then beneath that, he had these daughters, and their job was to find a husband. And then beneath, that's not totally true, but then beneath that, you had the guy, the butler, who was in charge of the affairs of the house and how it ran. And then you had cooks and assistant cooks. And then you had footmen, which I think were like waiters. Uh, and then you had, well, you just had all these people. You had a guy who was responsible for the new contraption called a car. And in the unfolding of Downton Abbey, what we saw was life as it was happening with a group of people who had very little in common, but what they did have in common drew them to interact with one another. And it made the household function. Now, I don't, I'm not recommending that you watch that. If you're going to go see the movie that's recently out, you should at least watch enough of it to know what's going on in the movie. But I, I tell you all of that because it captures for us something of this division of labor that has to happen in an organization. Everybody can't do everything. Everybody must do something. And nobody can do nothing. So how does that work in a church? When we come together, and for the cause of Christ, we come together and we say, this is what we're about, and this is where we're going, how do we get that done? One of the great realities, great meaning large, not being quality, one of the great realities of many churches is that they have a handful of people who do all the work. That is a church that is being contrary to God's design. So let's look at this. Why do we emphasize spiritual gifts as a part of discipleship? And the answer is because that's the way God designed it. Read with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I began reading in verse 4, and listen to what Paul says. And oh, by the way, we would expect Paul to speak into this, 
Paul does speak into it, as we'll see in just a few moments at length, uh, but, but we would expect him to speak into it because he was one of those guys, maybe the first guy that we would call a church planter. And much of the New Testament is written by Paul, writing to churches, telling them how to get it right. And this is a constant theme for him across his writings. Verse 4, chapter 12, we read this. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. Now, we'll stop reading there. We'll pick up in verse 7 in just a little bit. But what we find Paul saying there is that all of this happens under God's authority. There are different gifts. There are different points of service. But all of it falls under the umbrella of God and his design for his local church. So what we find as we begin into this, and I'll just kind of summarize what we've said up to this point before we move on, is that God intends each Christian to put their gift to work. And when they do that, the church benefits from that. I don't want, actually what I do want today is I want you to hear me say, when I talk about the church benefiting by this, by extension I'm also saying the kingdom of God benefits by this. We are one local expression of the work of the kingdom of God. And so when we get it right, it helps the kingdom of God move forward as God designed it to. So that's where we are so far, and that's simple, right? Simple concept, right? If you give me the right answer, I'll, I'll release us and we can go home right now. Simple, right? Wrong. Okay, boy, that was a great try. You, you really tried well. Actually, it is kind of simple, but we have a way of making it difficult, Actually, to be a little more precise about that, we have a way of making it complex and problematic. Let me give you two examples of that. For one, my history with local churches underscores this basic reality. And that is that even though God gives each follower of his, each person who has trusted Christ as their Savior, each one of us gets at least one spiritual gift that is designed to further the work of God in his church and his kingdom. But the reality seems to be that churches are full of people who refuse to use that gift. That's one of the reasons I asked and entitled this message, What Did You Get? Because I want you thinking already about what is it that God has specifically, through the Holy Spirit, given you to benefit the health of this church and the kingdom of God? What did you get? What gift is yours? And are you employing that gift for the cause of Christ? Let me go back to that Downton Abbey reference, and then I'll forget it. I'll never bring it up again. Let's take the cook's. And in this program, there was this lady who was a cook, and she had an understudy, actually a couple of understudies. But let's say in that division of labor in that uh, household that the cook decided, I'm not cooking anymore. Now, most of us, if we were in charge of that, we would say, that's right, you're not cooking anymore. 
but the next one that we've hired to replace you will do the cooking. But let's say that's not an option. Let's just say that that cook says, I'm here, I'm here to stay, but I'm not going to cook. The immediate turmoil that that causes gives us some kind of evidence of how important that is. But over the long haul, if there's a group of people, let's say 20 people or so, involved in that household, and nobody is there to cook and to take care of the nutritional needs of all, over a period of time, those people will suffer from malnutrition and ultimately starve to death unless they find some other way to get it. Let's take that picture and bring it in. By the way, we could do that with any of those individual deals. The butler, if he decided not to be a butler anymore, what happens to the household? Let's put that to work in the local church. If, and by the way, this is an if that means sense, but if God has set up a system in his church where every individual Christian has a specific role to play in the church and they're, and they're divinely empowered, that's spiritual gift, divinely empowered to do that, and that person does not exercise that gift, then it becomes a damaging reality in the life of that church. When one person, just one, I'm not talking about the dozens, I'm just talking about one. When one person doesn't exercise the gift that God has given them in that organization, in that body of Christ, then it begins to break down becomes less than what God intended it to be. I have a couple of examples of this. I'll try to give you very quickly. I want to make sure that we recognize there's, there's, a, there's kind of a corollary that goes into all of this, and that is there are some things that all of us are called to do. For instance, uh, you know, our evangelism team is doing a great job in, in pushing out some things for us Sunday school classes, some of you are already experiencing some of that. Some will experience it today. Uh, but they're moving us to emphasize, as I believe as they should. I've been part of the decision-making of that. Uh, but they've been moving us to be aware that there are people in our lives who need Jesus Christ. Remember, I've said since I've been here, God has strategically placed you in a circle of people who desperately need life. And so our evangelism team is pushing that we can do to help reach those people for the cause of Christ. Evangelism, even though we find that it is a gift that Paul lists, is also one of those requirements that all of us have in our daily Christian life. It's part of your job, if you will. But... This idea of not putting our gift to work, um, that, that hurts the church. My mother uh, was one of the best teachers that I ever sat under, as far as uh, Bible teachers, that, that is. And um, when I was youth minister at a church in South Texas, uh, my dad was pastor there, and so mom was one of, one of my go-to teachers, especially with teenagers and teenage girls in this case. Because I had laid out uh, the six-year discipleship plan that we had been working our teenagers through, and one of the components of that plan was a section on spiritual gifts. The reason for that is I believe that the Bible teaches that it is so critical for you and your personal Christian life to know your gift for the health of the church that I wanted those teenagers to get a good jump start in their adult lives in serving the church in the way that God designed for it. And so we, we did this section, an eight-week study on spiritual gifts. I asked my mom to teach that. I walked by her classroom the first day of that teaching cycle, 
And she had these uh, juniors and seniors, maybe a sophomore or two in there, but mostly juniors and seniors sitting in her class. And she was passing out presents, gifts to them. Small boxes wrapped with a nice bow on it. And she handed it out to them. And so I didn't know she was going to do that. And I didn't get one. So I thought I would stick around and see. And so I stood outside the door and I heard my mother tell those girls this. This is my gift to you because you're in this class. Uh, I'm giving it to you on two stipulations. One of them is that you keep it with you until we open it. Whether you're at church or at school, I don't care. I want you to keep it with you until we open it. The second stipulation is you don't open it until I tell you to. And she made all of them agree to that. And then she said, okay, take your gifts and hold on to them because we won't open them until the eighth week. And so I started watching those girls as they carried those gifts around every part of their church life. And we did some Tuesday morning discipleship groups, and we did a number of different things. And and every time I saw those girls, they were carrying those presents. They looked ragged by the end of eight weeks. But on the eighth week, I made sure to go by that class. As my mom said, okay, I want you to open your gifts today. And so they all opened them up, and she had... She had chosen gifts for each of those girls based on who they were. Everybody didn't get the same thing. Each of them got something different, but she had been in that church long enough and knew the parents so that she got something, a piece of jewelry that was really kind of geared to that girl. And I thought, well, that was nice. And then she dropped the teaching bomb on them. She said, for seven weeks, we've been talking about the gift that the Holy Spirit has given you. And we've talked about the reason for that gift. We've underscored for you girls that you need to use your gift in his church to benefit the work of the kingdom of God. It'll benefit you. But that's part of what God has done to give you that. And so I gave you this and, I, and this gift, and I asked you to carry it around with you for seven weeks. And it did you no good. Matter of fact, it became something of a hassle for y'all as you carried them around. But now every time you wear it, I want it to be a reminder to you of what God has done in your life on a personal level that takes his kingdom somewhere that he wants it to go. It is easy for us in our churches to divide up the labor among a handful of people rather than each of us exercising our gifts. And some of us have been carrying around that present maybe for years, and it's done you no good because it hasn't been put to work. The other way, let me just give you a corollary to that. I believe that God specifically equips a church to do what he's called it to do. I I could go to that passage in the New Testament where Paul said, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. You remember that? We normally use that individually when we don't have something we want. But one of the applications of that truth is that God will tell a church, this is where I want you to go, this is what I want you to do, 
And he then obligates himself to supply everything we need to do what he's called us to do. I like to say it in shorthand because it sticks better in our minds. God resources what he requires. And it's true in the spiritual gift part of it too. I know based on some of our objectives that we're working through from our task force uh, that one of the things we're really working to get better at is communication around here. And so part of that communication process means that there's some things that we need to do better and we have a handful of people that are doing it and we began to pray, I began to pray at least, that God would send those people that we needed, whether raising them up within the church that are already here or send them in from outside. had a conversation a few weeks ago with a guy whose specialty is video production. And in my mind, I thought about that deal. God resources what he requires. And maybe you're the resource for something that our church, or if you're not a member here of the church where you are a member, needs us to do. Let me move on because I'm out of time and halfway out of notes. So the second way that we miss this, I think, is the other end of that spectrum. And this, this is the hard part for some of us. Matter of fact, there would be some people who would say to me as a pastor, I can't believe you preached that. What I just got through talking about was that group of Christians who never used their spiritual gifts. The other end of the spectrum is that group of Christians who use theirs and other ones that they don't have because we have such a small number of people historically in churches who do most of the work and so we look for that person who is qualified for the job. Usually that means they're breathing. And we just keep dumping stuff on them, much of which may not be their spiritual gift. Verse 14 through 26, help us with this. Paul says there, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. In other words, just because you think it doesn't make it true. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing, or where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker, weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The picture here is that there's not any one piece that is more important than the others when it comes to the functioning of the whole body. Let me give you an example out of youth sports. Boy, you know, I had three children. Now I have grandchildren. One of the great privileges of living in El Paso is I don't have to go to youth sports events with my grandchildren. <laughs> my daughter, bless her heart, 
My daughter signed up for the city basketball league when she was about 10 years old. Now, my daughter is exceptional at a lot of things. Basketball is not one of them. But this is one of those leagues where anybody could sign up. We didn't have upward basketball around, so they put her on a team that was part of the city makeup. And and in that, I'm the first to admit, my daughter should have never been on a basketball court. And if she got on the court, she should never have touched the ball. That's my daughter. I mean, if you want to win, she's not your guy. But that's okay in that case because we had a little boy on that team. His name was Alex. And Alex according to his father, was LeBron James, in modern terminology, that was long before, LeBron was probably that age at the time, but um, he, he was what we would call the, the epitome of what LeBron James to a basket, come, brings to a basketball court. Alex, according to his father, and according to him, was the greatest thing that ever touched the basketball. Now, when I was playing, we called guys like that ball hogs that, that communicate okay. But I, I can remember being so frustrated Uh, Not for my daughter, because she was better off not touching the ball. But Alex, if he was on the court, he was going to get the ball, and he was not going to give the ball up. I can remember hearing his father yell at him from the stands. He's 10 years old. Yell at him from the stands. Don't pass it to her. Don't pass it to him. Shoot it. And so it didn't matter where he was. He'd loft that ball up, and he made a few missed most. But the reality of the matter is our team didn't need Lauren in order to lose because we had Alex and he helped us lose all the time. That's a bad way, but an effective way, I think, of rolling out for us the necessary, or the necessity, excuse me, of making sure that we function as a team. We cannot look to one or two people who excel in their gift and think that automatically they can do everything. That's true for a pastor. That's true for a deacon. That's true for a teacher. That's true for every one of us. God has given you a special gift that is designed to further his church and his kingdom. And when you operate in your gift, it's okay to say no to something that's not. Back to my mother as a teacher. My wife was approached not long after I became a senior pastor, and I'd been support pastor or support minister of staff in a long, long time in a lot of ways. But when we, I became a senior pastor of that church in South Texas, some people on the nominating committee believed that because our previous pastor's wife, that was my mother, was such a great teacher, and because I was married, then automatically that woman to whom I was married needed to be a teacher also. And so they went to Teresa, and they said, we want you to do this. She said, it's not my gift. I'm not sure I should do that, but I'll pray about it. That's, that's the good thing we always say. And part of that praying about it, she went and talked to my mother, and my mother gave her incredibly wise counsel. Some of us probably should hear this before we burn ourselves out. My mother said, Teresa, did God call you to teach that class? Did he give you the gift of teaching that drives you to teach that class? And Teresa said, no. 
And my mom's reply was, then why in the world would you even consider it? What did you get? What's your gift? And where are you using it? You realize that if God gave you a specific gift here and you're doing all of this, then you're probably too tired and too distracted to do your gift at the level it needs to be done. So what'd you get? And how are you doing plugging it in to our church? I told you I'd get the three questions today. We almost finished one. We can go to three places in the New Testament that we can find, well, at least three places in the New Testament. Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, which I've been working my way through, and you can go do those. Let me just say it this way. Uh, I, I'm not trying to say everything there is to say about spiritual gifts this morning. I just want to lay it out to say this is a fundamental part of the Christian life, and yet it is so often overlooked in churches. It's no wonder that we find churches crumbling and dying because they've left behind a basic approach that God has laid out for us. What is your gift? How can you know it? Let me give you five suggestions just quick. I'm just going to rattle them off. I'll give them to you later. First one is pray. If you don't know what your gift is, then start in prayer. Secondly, you need to ask some mature believers around you. What do they see in you? Just because they say it or see it doesn't make that your gift. But if a mature believer sees what you have going on, probably they're going to help be able to push you into a direction. Thirdly, what do you love doing? You know, this is one of those parts that I love about the way God puts it all together. He does not give you a gift that will make you absolutely, absolutely miserable while you're doing it. You will find a level of satisfaction and joy in doing the work that Christ has given you to do if you'll plug in to your gift. So one of the ways you find it is you start thinking about, what do I just love doing? No, there's not a spiritual gift of eating pie. So, number four, and this goes with what I just got through saying, you may need to stop doing some things in order to think clearly and pray th clearly about what you need to do. And the last one is, it's okay to experiment a little bit. Let me close with this. I need to clarify something to make sure that we close on the right note. This message today has been geared towards Christian people. I've been talking directly to those of you who claim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've made that commitment of faith to him, and you've trusted him as your Savior, and this message to this point has been for you, and that's unapologetically so. It needs to be that way as we come to these kind of discussions. But I need to clarify for the rest of us that if you have not responded to the giver of the gift, you can't plug a gift in. In other words, don't worry about what you might personally, the head of the church. That's not me, long, far from that. But Jesus Christ, the one who gives those gifts through his spirit, is the one who gives you life. So that's got to be the first step. Don't, don't try to jump in and figure out, okay, I'm going to start doing all this work in the church, figure out what my gift is, if you don't know who Jesus Christ is on a personal level. Do you? Do you know him? Have you been searching for something in life and you've not been able to put your finger on it? 
But as we sit here today, you can identify, you know what? I need a personal relationship. I need to be forgiven of my sins. I need the life that I was designed to have by my creator, but yet sin broke off. You only find that in Jesus Christ. He's not just the giver of gifts to his church for its work. He's also the giver of life, and only he can give it to you. And so for this part of the service, I want you to hear that. I'll take you back. Thursday night, I was on the late flight coming out of Houston. My aunt passed away. This was my mother's sister. She was like a second mother to me, and so I needed to get out there. And so I got on the plane, and it was a long, long day. And so it was somewhere around 10, 15 or so their time uh, as we were leaving out. And I was looking out the window, and I noticed that everybody around me got the, the service that the flight attendants give, you know, Coke or whatever you want to drink there, and, and pretzels. And pretzels are important on a flight like that. And I noticed that everybody got served but me. And so I had that universal human response. Hey, what about me? You forgot me. And it worked on me for a little bit. I started thinking, they don't like me. There's, that's something they're discriminating against me. And, you know, you make up all your... And finally, I just realized they're just jerks. They just... And so I was about to ask for some pretzels, and as the flight attendant walked past me, I, I, I looked towards her, and then out of the corner of my eye, I caught this red flash, and on the seat next to me was a bag of pretzels. I know it wasn't there when I got on, and so the reality was I'd been looking out the window when they came through to do that, and so they just laid it there next to me, and they went about their business. Let me tell you something about the gift of life that Jesus gives. It's available to you. It's sitting in your lap today, but it doesn't do you any good if you don't accept it. And some of you have been living your life without Jesus Christ in it, and the offer is there. You just have to take it. Why don't you do that today? And if you have made that decision, but you're not working in that gift set that God has given you, why don't you commit to doing that today, to figuring it out? We'll walk with you through that. We'll have lots of training opportunities for you to figure out what your gift is and where it, where it needs to plug in. But for today, it's a decision. Do I even care? What'd you get? Let's pray. And so, fathers, we come to time of invitation. We pray first for those who don't know you and have not received the gift of life that only you can give to us. I pray for them that they would recognize that the offer is made, it's there, and it's ready to be received, and that they would reach out and accept the gift of life through Jesus Christ today. Help us all to choose well in the way we live our lives, and to commit to be disciples, fully functioning disciples according to your design. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Invitation time is for you to make public any decision you want.